This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. Welcome to today's More to the Story podcast. I'm delighted to have my friend on today, Dr. Kevin Brown, who is the president of Asbury University. Obviously, well, some of you know I'm an alumnus of that school, and I'm so thankful for Kevin and his leadership and his mind. I think you're going to learn from him today on today's podcast. Look, if you could take a second and subscribe or like this podcast, that would really help us. Um, on our website, we have some opportunities for there to be feedback for the podcast, and um, you can sign up for an email list to get other news of things we'll be producing. This summer, at the beginning of summer, we're primarily putting out interviews, but very soon we'll be producing other content that I think you'll find helpful as we try to proclaim some truths from an Orthodox Wesleyan perspective. And Kevin represents that so well, so I think you'll enjoy that. And we're so thankful, too, to have partners and people helping us get this going, like WPO Development and Keith Waters, who's the CEO of that group. We worked with his group here in Tampa. I'm still in Tampa as I'm recording this, but he, he did a great job in leading us through a capital campaign. He can guide you through a mission planning study, a strategic plan, and really take your campaign to the level that it needs to be. Um, he says this. I love it. He says... And he said as often, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And part of what Keith's able to do is help point you in the right direction. So I hope you'll take a minute to check out their website. Um, you can just Google them or you can just ask for more information at info at WPODevelopment.com. Um, really, Keith does great work and he has a lot of people who work all over the country. So I hope you'll check him out. And now we'll go on to today's podcast with Dr. Kevin Brown. Welcome to the Mortis Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. I am he, Dr. Andy Miller, and I am delighted to have on the podcast with me, Dr. Kevin Brown, who serves as the president of Asbury University. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. I am excited to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, it's we're, we've been praying for you, and as an alumnus of Asbury, whose family's very involved, my, my brother's on the faculty, and my Grandfather's on the board. My dad him. lives in town. There's no getting away. And and you are a thought leader in the Wesleyan holiness tradition and somebody I've wanted to have on for a long time. So I'm glad, glad that I get this opportunity. Now, Ke Kevin, I would love to just hear from you. Now, there'd be a lot of people who don't know you at all. Maybe they've, heard, in my audience, who've heard of Asbury University, but that's probably, probably it. They, they don't know who you are. I'd love to you to sketch your story and where you've been and how you've arrived at this position. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's one of those, I, in sketching the story, there isn't a uh, even coherent pathway. In other words, um, even like yeah. with my graduate work, I've had students before who have asked like, hey, I want to do something similar. And I'm like, that's great. But much <laughs> of my journey was not well planned out. It was just the way things came into place and uh, God directed things, et cetera. Um, yeah, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. I went to the University of Indianapolis okay. uh, for college. It's a Methodist school, but but not uh, certainly you wouldn't find a lot of religious artifacts on campus. Okay. Um, met my wife there, and that was wonderful. And I began working in the banking industry. Okay. Uh, but my family, I have a family of educators. Okay. And so I was a black sheep going into business. And I remember in my first year of marriage telling my wife that the dream job would be to teach. My father taught at the University of Louisville. Okay. And um, I, my life was so 
transformed by men and women who just deliberately invested in my in my life in college uh, in ways they didn't have to. And it just like fundamentally transformed me and altered the trajectory of my life. And so the, the opportunity uh, to come beside students and attempt to do something earlier um, or, or do something similar to uh, direct them was um, just a, a really exciting prospect and to combine the life of the mind and all these other wonderful communal aspects of a university. Um, I have a weird educational background. I, I did an MBA. Um, I did a master's of letters, which is a British degree um, in, in basically in theology. So that was my opportunity to dip my foot in that pool, as I've said. And my PhD uh, was at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And it was between um, economics, uh, their social science group, and then a group called um, critical studies, which um, and that specifically philosophy and political philosophy uh, is what I was looking at. So I've, again, a, a pretty weird mix. I think it makes a lot of sense, uh, but at the same time, it doesn't fit nicely. Into right, the right. Let me back up a little bit. So your dad, I didn't realize your dad was a professor. So you grew up kind of like around the academy. What did he teach or what does he teach? He was a, he was a family therapist. Okay. Yes. So uh, he and his research uh, related to children in the wake of a divorce. Okay. And if a divorce were to occur, how can conditions be created that uh, will best assist uh, children who are left in the wake of that? And yeah. so. Uh, created a program that uh, was utilized in court systems in Kentucky and really throughout the United States and the world. So it was really cool to, and I'm embarrassed to say, I only learned about this a few years ago where okay. I actually interested like, hey, what did you study by the way? <laughs> and just hearing more and more about that was was really neat and seeing my father in a bit of a different light. So he was, uh, he obviously probably had a clinical side as well, but um, he was mainly a professor like instituting these um it was, but it wasn't a part of your development. You weren't thinking, oh, I want to be a professor like my dad. You just were around educators. Or was it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, being around educators. But I, I think, again, I, I think the thing that was most influential was just seeing how, I mean, college is this time of, as I put it, moral and spiritual and intellectual and social vulnerability. Right. You're, you're an adult, but you have this kind of malleability that is really critical at that juncture in your life. And so uh, how you're being shaped, how you think about yourself and your identity, how you think about your friendships, how you think about uh, your faith and your spirituality, um, that's just a very critical period. And so uh, to, to be in an environment where people were just deliberately investing in me has just made such a difference. And, um, and to, so to be at, uh, a faith-based institution uh, that believes in the academy and the, the norms of academia and the university, uh, but also believes in a formative, deliberate, covenantal, residential student experience. Right. Uh, all of those things just kind of combine a lot of different um, passions that I have and experiences that were helpful for me. Yeah, so interesting. So University of Indianapolis, I'm sorry, I won't go back over every detail, like every degree, no worries. but uh, how'd you get there? How'd you get to uh, basketball? Really? Uh, I, okay. Yeah. I, I, uh, forever ago played, but in fact, I joke that I, I really majored in basketball. I studied okay. 
But it was this really utilitarian, like, I can probably get a job with a business degree, but I, I was there to play basketball. Okay. And, um, I had, uh, toward the end of, of college, no, it was, it was my sophomore year, rather, um, I, I broke both of my feet oh, in the my. same place top of my foot uh navicular stress fracture in the same at the same play you broke both your feet no in the same place same place okay gotcha yeah if you remember the strength shoes those like oh yeah shoes i i I wanted to get a pair because if i got a pair i was supposedly going to be able to dunk uh right (laughs) yes that was the uh so went the advertising I purchased those and I had a summer before my sophomore year that I was with a personal trainer and just went nuts. I mean, every day I was in those shoes doing hard workouts. And um, what we didn't know at the time, there's just an unusual strain on the front of your foot uh, with those shoes. And so I I literally broke both of my feet in the same place. I had to wear two boots actually and was kind of like um, waddling around campus and, and um, yeah, it did not assist my self-esteem at the time, but it, it was a it was really critical because I'd always conceptualized myself as a basketball player. Sure, and I had to begin to think of myself in very different ways. And just really quick, a, a story with that: yeah. I began dating Maria um, my senior year, and Maria's parents. Her father was a pastor and um, went on to to work at a mission agency, but. During the time I was dating her, they um, gave her a book to give to me, and uh, it was on faith and spirituality. And I said, "Why? Why do they want me to have this book?" And she said, "Oh, they they said you're a thinker." Okay. And that made me smile because I never thought I was stupid, but I just never conceived of myself as a thinker. Right. And I I read that book like a thinker. Wow. I, I, I underlined it. I, I told everyone about its arguments. I was really trying to work them out in my mind. And it just changed so much about me. Right. And when I finished my PhD, one of the first letters I wrote was to my in-laws. Wow. I said, today I have a PhD because years and years ago, you called me a name. Amen. Uh, and so that that was... Uh, they conferred a healthy identity upon me. And again, on my best day in education, I'm conferring a healthy identity. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Um, hopeful identity. Um, I, an identity of becoming uh, on our students. Amen. Well, I want to I sit on that for a minute in just a second. Now, now your father-in-law, is, is it Jim Harriman? I know there's uh, a couple of brothers. Is, is Jim your- Hubert Harriman. You, your Hubert. Okay. Is there a Jim? Yeah. Uh, Jim is his brother. Okay, yep. okay. I'm so, forgive me, Hubert. Please forgive me. No, um, no, no worries. Uh, but they're, they, those, they came one year while I was a student at Asbury, and together preached at the at the Holiness. Well, now it's called Holiness Emphasis Week, and uh, yes. they were great. Yeah, I, rem- I remember them really well. And those who are in the Wesleyan Holiness world will know uh, know of the Harrimans, and I love oh. that. You know, I had an interesting moment too, and I just want to highlight it because. This is this is the role that people play in the lives of young adults, as the, as you said. And it's, it's kind of funny, not funny. It's interesting you use the word malleable because, like, not exactly something that you you, you want to tell a student. You're malleable right now, but it's really true, right? right? This is a key moment yes. uh, physiologically. What's happening in our life? So it's it's interesting though. Like I, I remember, I had I had 
amazing opportunities um, at both Asbury University and Asbury Seminary. But Asbury Seminary, I uh, it, preaching is taken late in the curriculum, but I got to be a Dr. Ellsworth Callis. And he, who eventually became the, served as the president for the seminary for a period, but just a well-known preacher yes. and writer. And, um, and he took, he took me under his wing for a period. And I remember the day I, I struggled, I struggled for a while, um, particularly in undergrad in writing. And he said, he said to me, you need to write. There are, there are many books you have to write, Andy. Nobody had ever told, I was just getting through writing papers at the seminary. And, um, and, and I can look at a few other places and times when people would call that out. And it actually took me a while to believe it. It took yeah. me a while to believe that that could happen. But I think what you're describing, what your in-laws did for you, was gave you this vision, this hopeful vision. And I like how you use the language conferring too, a very academic word. Like they're conferring a reality on you that they see in you. It's so powerful. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I've heard the word before, hypersee, like uh, an artist would look at raw material, but they can see underneath the raw material that that's actually this beautiful um, statue that right. could be like, in other words, they, they see, they hypersee, they see beyond right. um, the raw material and uh, praise God that there are people in our lives that can hypersee that which we can't. Right. Um, Amen. And the best way to pay that forward is to to hopefully do that with our own students. R really quick too. Yeah. My father, what I appreciated about him, um, one of the weekends Maria uh, invited me up to um, her house on a Sunday. Um, I knew that uh, on Sunday in her household, we'd go to church, uh, we'd eat a huge meal and everyone would take a nap. I, I was <sighs> like, this is awesome. I love, I love your house. Life. Um <laughs> But what I noticed about Hubert was he would give like a fiery, impassioned Wesleyan holiness chapel or not chapel, but sermon. And then we'd go over to the parsonage and at lunch, he would do the same thing with me at the dinner table. Awesome. With the same passion. And I remember thinking like, this, this is not what he does. Amen. This is who he is. Amen. Like it's in him. Like he's not... Oh, I'm a preacher, like, uh, or that's my job. It it was just so um, uh, entrenched into his character and who he was. He wanted people to know this optimistic message, mm. this holy theology uh, that was so transformative to lives, and he was just so compelled. And I just thought I, that was so contagious and attractive the wow. way that. Uh, he, it wasn't viewed as like, I'm supposed to tell you this because I'm a preacher. Right, right. This isn't a job. This is his life. This is what he's Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Now, you're, during that time, you're serving, as a, serving in a bank? Is that the idea in the banking industry? What was yes. that like? Uh, uh, well, um, very different than higher education. Um, <laughs> I have a lot of bankers I, I, uh, I interact with, and I love them. But uh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh, well, it, what, what I did love... Um, I used to say, if you were an athlete, you would really like banking because there, there's a scoreboard. Right. Like every single day I knew we won or we lost. And, uh, and, and so you never, there was something really simplistic. Now, it was like a hyper utilitarian environment. Um, you hit your numbers, great. You don't, uh, you get in trouble or you get fired. Wow. Uh, yeah. It's kind of an up or out mentality. Communication lines are very defined. But there, there was something elegant and, and even 
nice and simplistic about that. Like I knew what was within my realm of control. I knew who I reported to. I knew who reported to me. I knew whether they were successful. I always said if, if someone was terminated there, they were never confused as wow. to why. Sure. Um, so there, there was something about that environment that um, what, what was, was nice and was simplistic. Um, were you a loan officer? I, what'd you, what was your job or what did you do? Or did you, like, my final job was um, I was a community bank president. Oh, and, good. Okay. Um, but I, I always say that sounds really fancy. I know. <laughs> I didn't get that job because I was qualified. Okay. I got it. I was the exact opposite of the person before me and okay. uh they were looking for i was young and stupid and aggressive and like oh, we're gonna we're gonna take the bank into the community and um and that's what they wanted um but it wasn't that i was the most qualified i was just very different from the person before me and they wanted a fresh expression that was going to be very uh a, a, a stark alternative to what they had had before so that's really um what, what moved me into that. And, um, I did that my final, my final four years was in that role. Um, but I was just, I was really eager, um, to get into higher ed and specifically Christian higher ed. Yeah. So the, so it's interesting. Of course, your, your predecessor, Sandy Gray, who was my very first guest on my first podcast, Captain Corner. Now we're on this next iteration of it or the story, but she has a similar story. Like she was, she was in the banking industry. I think she was a vice president somewhere. Um, and then made the move to Academy and then eventually to Asbury. It sounds very familiar. Now it's interesting. Um, so your, your father-in-law, your in-laws all together are kind of speaking into your life, saying these type of things. And there's this, you're, you're in that, that industry, but there's like something stirring in you to move you to something else. Th- so I, I remember some, one of our past conversations, you talked too about a conversation with Dennis Kenlaw in this period. I don't know if it's it, it exact lining up, but leading you to pursue higher education like as a field. I, I, I talked to as many people as would talk to me. Like okay. even... I didn't live in Wilmore, but yeah, I, I came down and met with Dr. Kinlaw. Um, Dr. Al Coppage right. met with me. Uh, there was a, a gentleman, um, uh, Bill Vermillion, who was in our conference, who uh, just anyone I could speak with. Um, but it's interesting you mentioned Dr. Gray. Yeah. I was talking to my father-in-law about this, this desire. And he said, he, at this time, he was the president of World Gospel Mission. Okay. And you know, I have a board member that used to be a banker and she transitioned to Christian higher education. I said, I, I would love to talk to her. And he connected me and it was Sandra Gray. Wow. Uh, and at that time, when we first made an email contact, I think she was a professor. The next year she was a provost. And when I actually came and sat down with her, she had just been announced the new president of wow. Asbury. Uh, so... It, it was really fascinating. Um, and I didn't even know that. And I, in fact, I went to the website to look up uh, the, the address to put into MapQuest. Uh, that a sense of how, how long ago that yeah. was. And um, it said, congratulations, Dr. Sandra Gray, 17th president of Asbury University or Asbury College at that time. And so I was like, oh, my goodness, she was promoted to president. So I, I met with her and she was wonderful, as you might imagine, and just said, here's what you need to do to go from here to here. Like mm. you, like your education, you need to start teaching adjunct. Um, I would encourage you to talk to people. You need to make sure your wife has an understanding and 
just all of these considerations. And she connected me with a gentleman named Steve Clements, who's our Dean of Arts and Sciences here. And he and I met a few years later and we just kept having a conversation. And in 2009, I met Dr. Gray in 2007. In 2009, I started teaching at Anderson University, Okay, but stayed in touch with Steve. And in 2013, that spring, he said, hey, we have a position coming open and um, I want to encourage you to explore that. And I did. And I interviewed and they said yes. And we said yes. So awesome. The rest of the tree. Yeah. So as you're in this in this, this stage, like you're, you're entering in and you come to Asbury as a business professor and you have this background studying theology in, and then also doing the uh, MBA and a PhD. Uh, what, when you're working as a professor, what do you see as your field, like your area, your specialty? I mean, obviously, you're probably working with students on business plans and various various levels of like of the disciplines of, of a business department. But what is your area, like your scholarly area? And you might not be able to pursue it as much now, but I'm curious. And I hope you are, but I'm curious what that was. Oh, I'm really glad you asked. Um, so my PhD, I remember someone saying to me, now, one day this will get boring and old to you and you just need to push through it. It never happened. Amen. Um, Great. Hard work, but it never happened because I was so intrigued by it. And, and with that, I was looking at the United States is one of the most segregated countries in the world for an advanced democracy and um, across different levels. But I was looking at racial segregation. So there's a very economic way of looking at that. And it, you can kind of superimpose the economic uh, model onto the, the grid of uh, social relationships and housing patterns. And, um, and there's, there's certainly some legitimacy to that. And we've done programs over the last 40 years to, to, to try to integrate uh, low-income, minoritized households into uh, more uh, racially integrated neighborhoods. And those, those have been met with some skepticism. But there's, there's an ethical way of thinking about that as well. It's not just the economic, do the costs and benefits work out here? Uh, but is there something moral to um, integrating as, as a country? And not just spatially integrating, but socially right. integrating. And that was such a fascinating exercise. And, and I called it at the end, the, the paradox of knowledge. I said, the more I learned, the less I knew mm. uh, because just so much complexity to these things. But as I um, progressed from there, I, I primarily taught in the areas of economics and statistics, which everyone hated and uh, ethics. Um, but I, I primarily uh, was trying to look at the space where there was value judgments that would show up in a social science field like economics. And so trying to, so let me just give one tiny example. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's an economic assumption in, in like kind of um, neoliberal economic theory that um, when, when we give people the things that they want, when people get what they want, we make them better off. And so if you really enjoy hot dogs and that gives you utility, we should create the conditions where you can purchase hot dogs. So if, if that's true, uh, what, is, what is the market system or what is the arrangement that best allows people to exhaust gains through trade uh, and, and this kind of free exercise of 
voting with their dollars to get the products and services that, that they want. And this really validates the kind of modern market system in many ways. Uh, and it has a lot of benefits. But then we have to go back to, am I made better off because I get what I want? And there's a pretty interesting assumption there that that is, that is not something that the field of economics can answer alone. It's an assumption they right. operate. That, that's a philosophical question. That's a theological Absolutely. Question. Um, what, what am I, and why is it that, um, even though, uh, we've increased over the last hundred years and GDP per capita, we have more stuff and we have more money and, uh, we have leisure time and things like that. Why do we not see increasing levels of satisfaction, uh, mm. with human beings? Why, uh, what is it about a human that is insatiable? And now we go to Augustine who says, you have made us for yourself. Right, right are our hearts until they find a rest in you. And so maybe is there a question about what is a human and human identity and human purpose and teleology that needs to be answered in order to think carefully uh, about this other economic assumption that's being made. So that was the kind of like yeah. space I liked to uh, play in, if you will. Uh, and I always saw that this, there was this wonderful integration um, that could occur between these fields. Yeah, so that makes so much sense of why you would able, you're able to do that master's of, of letters and at the same time studying theology. And and, I, and those of you, if you've been able to listen to some of Kevin's um, chapel messages or you know maybe if he comes to town, you can listen. You, you hear him quote, uh, I don't know when you, what town you're going to, but you know, town in general, you come to town. And when you, when you do, you, you, you often come back to, to Augustine. And I find that interesting. And, and, and you talk about it within the context of virtue. And I, I think that that's helpful as far as like, and, and then you're generally talking about that because you're talking about Asbury, character formation and how we're forming the whole, whole person. And so I think it's interesting that you've been able to find a way to connect your research to really what you're doing now. Because like ultimately, you're trying to create, I don't know, I, let me, let, I'll give you an opportunity to correct me. Um, create an environment where young adults, I, mean, I guess, and you also have mid-level people too in adult education programs, are being shaped as humans to experience all that God has for them, right? Amen. I don't know what Absolutely. the exact words of the mission statement are, and we do that within the context of a Wesleyan holistic holiness theology. But I think, yes. I think that is so interesting because like, it's not just dealing like you get enough money so you can be happy. Right, you, you you get enough stuff. Right. Instead, uh, and, and and that's that's why um, when I talk about when I try to get everybody in the world to go to Asbury, and soon I'll begin everybody in the world to go to Wesley Biblical Seminary as well. <laughs> that's my goal. Like you go to Asbury Understood. first, and then you go to Wesley. Um, but as we as we work through this period in somebody's life, what we're trying to produce is like, we're try trying to get somebody to see something on the other end. They're not just yes. in to accumulate knowledge so they can become a bank president, which is a noble thing. And I hope we have bank presidents who are alumnus of Asbury University and, and are members of our churches. But you're doing that because you are fulfilling the calling that God has on your life. Yes. Yes. So this is, this is and I think, I don't quite get though how this comes from the idea of segregation, like how you pull that in like from the very beginning of your study? And well, that's a great question. Um, Cause that might seem, and, and I think the link is this, that we have this huge question that, uh, and I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna simplify the argument, but like black and white households 
don't live together. Um, and what, is there anything morally objectionable about that? Hmm. And so we've thought of that typically in terms of, oh, uh, that's wrong because of resource mismatch. And now black households um, don't have the same resource opportunities uh, that others have. Or uh, a big kind of social science question is, do neighborhoods actually cause poverty or do they reflect poverty? Do poor people live in poor neighborhoods or do poor neighborhoods make people poorer? Uh, that's been a big question. And all these things are very much ethical. There's right. there's no question about it. But um, I think there's just a larger moral question about, is there something good about social integration with people? In other words, is that the right, is that the only paradigm to kind of right. overlay this? Uh, it's wrong because uh, it creates economic inefficiencies between groups. Certainly, uh, it's not good enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like uh, there was an argument at one point about um, South African apartheid that actually it was the best arrangement for white households and black households. In other words, right, um, right. in economic terms, uh, it would churn Pareto efficient equilibria for both of those groups in a maximal way. Whoa, man, you're going to have to back up there. Churn uh, Prieto, 80% distribution. I got that. Okay. Churn Prieto distribution. Help me out. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. It's um, great. I'm glad that I'm glad that somebody has that vocabulary. I don't possess it. So, but tell me it, what you said. It would, it would create the best economic, political, and okay. social situation for each of the groups. Uh, it would make the, the best. It's not that they'd be equal, but they'd be best off under that arrangement. Right to other arrangements. Now, whether that's true is one thing, but then you have to ask, um, okay, even if that's true, right. is that still an environment I would want to be in? Or because we're, we're hyper-segregated, even if it's uh, that, that increases my economic potentiality and their economic potentiality, is there something else that's lost? Right. And to answer that question, right. we have to recruit from um, something outside of the field of economics alone. Right. And I, I would say that even a lot of the social scientists that were really pushing for social integration uh, were kind of um, reaching beyond their grasp, so to speak, because they would use this kind of like utilitarian language, uh, but really they're aiming for something uh, that, that is more spiritual in right. nature, um, that is deeper yes. and deeper, uh, than what could be accounted for within their field alone. And so I was trying to... Uh, uh, extend the boundaries by recruiting in some other disciplines to help us think about that. And that that's how I could get from something like a topic like segregation and ethics into some of these, these right. other areas. So the pro the problem, like what, what they're trying to solve with their analysis is not just creating more, more money or more income or being able to get what you want. Instead, you're, you're suggesting we're all looking for something different. And that's truly like a theological philosophical question. So I know yeah. you said that at the very beginning of this whole area, but it, I think I got it now. <laughs> so no, so, absolutely. Yeah. Now it's interesting just with the segregation piece. It's, um, I, I don't, I don't really buy into, it's a really nice plug and play statement about Sunday morning being the most segregated hour in the United States. And that's true. Um, it, 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 
It is, but normally they, that's assumed to be a wrong in itself, right? It, like mm. you, they use some sort of uh, moral judgment that that is wrong. And uh, I, I, I've been there many times in, in the Salvation Army, probably compared to other denominations that we have our challenges, um, is a very diverse, has a diverse body. Um, of people who make the Salvation Army up, particularly in the United States, but globally, of course, it's a, I mean, it's just as diverse as the world. Um, at the same time, like there, there is a, a challenge that, that the Salvation Army has in that um, there, it's, and there was a movement, let me back up, there was a movement in the early 2000s while I was in seminary to really create multicultural churches, right? That, exposing this problem, like saying the same thing, most segregated hour, we've got to do something about that. So there were churches that intentionally combined or church plants that started up intentionally multicultural um, and, and struggled and struggled mightily. And many of those have separated back out. Now you'll find churches, uh, particularly like mega churches seem to be pretty good at making sure like they're, they're finding room for various expressions. But like I look at what, the black church provides or the Hispanic church provides and the unique uh, cultural understanding of the way they've ex express their love of God, I, I'm thankful for it. Like I wouldn't want there to not be a black church. I, and I'm, I'm sorry, I, I might say something wrong here and I might need to be corrected by you or by somebody else. So I just like, fully acknowledge that. Um, but like I'm, I'm not certain. Like I, I think there needs to be, of course, integration. But like the Sunday morning, that's my biggest question: is how we deal with that. Like, of course, our apartheid is wrong. Of course, there's laws that restrict people to go from one, you know, on different sides of the road and all, all sorts of things like that. But I, I struggle with trying to figure out how that works in life of the church. And I think for you in your role at Asbury University, where you are in a rural situation, trying to create a, an opportunity for there to be diversity so we can be enhanced by this, it creates all kinds of challenges because uh, I, I think you, you get where I'm going. I'll, I'll give you a chance to comment on that. Maybe help me. Yeah, no, uh, boy, big topic. Uh, yes, it's a small thing. Uh, I, I remember talking to a researcher at the University of Louisville who is a family friend and um, He's actually from Africa, and I, I was speaking to him about what I was looking at in, in perhaps a very idealistic way. And he kind of cut me off and said, you know, like people like to gather with like people, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Kind of like maybe temper your idealism a little bit. Um, there's a lot of language like in, in, in social capital um, uh, scholarship where we talk about uh, bonding capital, like capital with people that are like us, but also the, the value of bridging capital. And I think that's a nice balanced approach because it says there, there is a kind of impoverishment if we only have bonding capital and no bridging capital, Cap like building bridges yeah, sure, sure. With, with people who are unlike us. So I, I think there's some things to explore there that are really important. Um, I've been really interested in this, this kind of theological argument, like how we talk about, and this is, um, boy, we could spend a lot of time on this, but like in a, uh, in a bridged way, like I, I grew up with this idea that all my salvation was secured with the faculties above my neck. Okay. And what I mean by that is what I believed in my mind and what I uttered with my mouth. Mm -hmm. I believe Jesus is Lord. Right. I say there's prayer, I'm saved. 
And um, the value of thinkers like Augustine and, uh, and John Wesley and C.S. Lewis, um, after the, 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 those thinkers, like after a period of my life and, and reading them, I remember beginning to reconceptualize that, that maybe the center of gravity for the Christian life is uh, here. It's below my neck. It's mm-hmm. my heart. Because my heart, like, what do I want? What do I desire? And, you know, I, I was talking to a student once and he gave the classic, if there's a loving God, how could he send people to hell? But I began to just think, you know, that assumes people don't want to be in hell. Mm-hmm. Um, do want to be in heaven. And I'm not sure that's a good right. assumption. And I how could a loving God force people to be in heaven when they don't want to be there? Right. Um, and especially if if heaven, and, and to turn this into, for example, an issue of race, although it would apply to a lot of other things, if, if heaven is constituted by every tribe and every tongue and right. every nation in a communal expression of worship to God. Um, but I, I don't desire that. Would I like heaven? Uh, mm. If I... Yeah, sure nationalist um but still believed in jesus it's not clear that i would like heaven very much uh i remember hearing someone say once that we all bear god's image so if we only know some of us we don't know all of god um and i want to know all of god i want to have a heart that is um fit right. uh and to use a Wesleyan expression uh where wesley talked about our fitness for heaven. And, and just to belabor that point, there's a Methodist minister named Victor Shepherd who yeah. just wonderful. He's a example. former salvationist. Is he really? Yeah. So interesting. I just came upon him in my own research where he talked about the, uh, sorry, uh, sidebar no, to ahead. sidebar. Uh, and, and he wrote an article about the Methodist New Connection, which was the denomination that William Booth left. Um, anyhow, so he, he traces that. So yeah, he's Canadian, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He said, uh, I, I'm excited to know that. He said, if someone goes to a concert and they pay money to go to that concert, that gives them the right to be at that concert. But now there's another question about their musicality. Uh, he said, imagine if they're tone deaf, even though they have the right to be at that concert, they're not musically fit to be there. The music will be grating or bothersome or even boring or whatnot. So there's a question of the right to be there, and there's a question of their fitness, fitness yeah. to be at the concert. And he said, our right to heaven is justification, but our fitness for heaven is sanctification. Hmm, awesome. And I thought that was a really yeah. beautiful metaphor that Christ's atoning death on the cross has given me the right uh, to heaven. Uh, but then there's a question of, am I fit for it? Would I want to be there? And perhaps that... Uh, Jamie Smith has used this language, perhaps we'll stand before God one day and he won't say, Kevin, what do you believe or what have you uttered? But he'll ask the below my neck question, what do you want? Amen. What is your want? Um, and that's a fitness question. Yeah. Um, I just read this yesterday. Let me jump in my- with the fitness question before you get. So uh, it, uh, there's a great song in the Salvation Army tradition. Um, that that sa- it says here at the cross, and it ends in this like kind of dramatic way. It says, "Lord, for Thy service, fit me 
fit me, please. And so like there's this idea of like trying to move us in that direction, like calling us to something. And there, again, like the, the fitness piece is the more to story. There's yes. more, more than just getting in, right? There's, there's uh, equipping us, ourselves, fit, fitting ourselves. I, I, I interrupted you. Go ahead, Kevin. No, no. I, I love that. Um, Robert Coleman, yeah. uh, who lives in Wilmore, um, he gave an illustration I was reading to the kids last night on, like, I think he was outside, he's super hot. Doing oh, work. yeah. I think I know where you're going. Yeah. And um, I think it was his son, like, oh, dad's hot. Yeah. And dirty glass. And fills it with lukewarm water and takes it out to his dad. And he said, the glass was dirty. The water was lukewarm, but it was given in perfect love. Amen. Amen. Uh, and I, I thought that was a really beautiful, that the, the vessel freighted as it is, yeah. we can see a perfect love and a perfect motive, a perfect fitness uh, to do the work of God. That, that really reinforces this continuity between heaven and earth. Amen. Uh, that, that not I'm just this broken vessel, but then I die. And I'm going to get zapped by this holiness laser. And then all of a sudden right. it will be great. But right, like, right. If, if we b believe this Wesleyan idea, then heaven is not there. It's here. And it's not then it's now. And uh, the, the choices and the practices that govern my life on a daily basis are making me fit for a heavenly reality but the nature of those desires that I'm cultivating will speak to the nature of the reality that I occupy in the future, which is a heavy thought, but it's, it's a fast. Yeah. Oh, it, it connects to the reality that, that heaven isn't just a place that's out there that you go to and said that really re reinvigorating the idea that, that, that the eternal reality is of a new heavens and a new earth with resurrected bodies and the, the, the power of what that could be. If our bodies are like his, like made like him, like him, we rise. If we indeed have a resurrected body like Jesus, Jesus's body was pretty amazing. Jesus and like walking through walls, who knows what it could be for us in a new heavens and new earth. And when you think about that, I'm reminded of this idea of the volitional aspect of where we're headed that C.S. Lewis said um, that, the new heavens and new earth is a place where we say to God, thy will be done. But on the reverse side, you're talking about hell and eternal punishment of the wicked, however we want to describe that, um, is a place where we say to God, uh, God says to us, thy will be done. Mm -hmm. So like we, we, we submit to the fit, holy life that he wants for us. And that's ultimately going to express itself in a new heavens and new earth. But then on the reverse, if we choose to not accept that, um, God says to us, thy will be done. Oh, I want to pivot yeah, real maybe quick. Maybe God doesn't condemn us right. so much as he seconds our motion. Say that again. Maybe God doesn't condemn us so much as he seconds our motion. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, that that's a, a key thing. Now, I, like I still believe there's such a thing as God's wrath, but that doesn't necessarily mean it expresses itself in eternity. Um, yeah, this whole, oh man, Kevin, I love talking to you. I've always enjoyed just a few minutes I have. Now, I, the oh, problem is up. I'm running out of time and you've got to go, but I want to make sure we actually talk about this place you work that's really important to me, Asbury University. Uh, tell me about what's happening there. And like, um, I, I know that we don't have enough time and you've just in two years, halfway through your first year, COVID-19 hits and everything changes for you. And there's a lot of things you have to focus on. So I'm just curious about your vision for Asbury um, now, at, particularly at this stage. Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, someone said recently, and it was such a great point, referring to COVID, that crises only accelerate trend lines. Hmm. 
crises sometimes will reveal trend lines. Wow. That's a really good point that um, COVID has changed things and brought on new things, but in many ways, it's just accelerated inevitabilities that have already existed. And so there's an economist um, in the UK named Tim Harford who had this wonderful metaphor this summer that a rubber band and plastic. And he said, you know, when you stretch a rubber band, it snaps back into place. Yeah. And when you stretch plastic, it stays forever stretched. It's different. It yeah. never returns to normal. And so he was inviting this question, what in a post-pandemic reality in your institutions are rubber band-ish and what is plastic? Hmm. And I think his, he's missing, um, I love that, but maybe missing a third metaphorical element of stone um, so stones never change. Interesting. What will snap back into place, return to normal? What will be forever changed? What never changes? And those have been some helpful categories for me and, and our leadership team to think about the days ahead. Um, certainly, for example, returning to chapel and gathering, uh, in the fall where all students are together, uh, to do this unique thing that we do. Um, where we stop everything we're doing and come together for spiritual edification uh, three times a week. That I'm so excited to return to that, to return to the class. But there are a lot of elements that we need to think differently where we can't return to some like 2010 or 2015 instantiation of our institution. Yeah. And um, uh, so we need to look at some of the changes in the market and the labor force perceptions of higher education. Um, and that means maybe the, the three or four year college experience for a student uh, is, is changed and reconstituted in different ways. So instead of in four years, you get a bachelor's, maybe it's in four years, um, you get a bachelor's and you get a master's or you start a master's and you have a gap year and you have an, inter and you have an international experience. Uh, that that we, so one of the things there's so much prognostication about the future of higher ed. But one thing I'm relatively convinced of um, is that we'll see a blurring of the lines between secondary, post-secondary, and graduate education. In other words, historically it's high school, college, grad school, and I think we'll see a blending between. Mm. Them. Even two years ago, we did an audit of our students who brought hours with us. Right. The students who brought hours, the average was 15 and a half hours wow. a semester. Um, so they brought, in essence, a semester right. with them. They're through AP courses or, or whatever, uh, dual credit. The, the substitutability of college credit hours is as high as it's ever been mm. in human history. And so I think somewhere in our model, we have to account for that fact uh, that train changing trend and um, accommodate that for our students while still giving them a full uh, Asbury experience, whether that's residential or, or online. Hmm. Wow. And, and you also have a, something ahead of you too. In a few years, there's a, I don't know if it's a baby bus, but in, is it 2026, 2027, where there's going to be just, there's less people graduating um, in light of the recession. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. The, during the financial crisis, the birth rate dropped about 13%. Wow. Never, never returned uh, to regular levels. So yeah, in 2026, we'll see this precipitous drop of the, the number, uh, the, the cohort of eligible 
high school seniors uh, who would otherwise go into college. And by the way, that is, at this point, it looks like that will continue through 2038. Uh, so this is, uh, hey, we, we got to really batten down the hatches for a few years and see our way through that. No, th- this is a huge seismic change. And so um, you might know again, the demographer. He's in the Asbury tradition. Actually, Dr. Coleman's grandson, Lyman Stone, is a great scholar. He's not, and he didn't go to any of the Asbury institution. His his dad is a professor at the seminary. But it's interesting. He's he's often quoted by in New York Times. Um, he's written for all kinds of popular journal. But he talks about this in a brilliant way. And like it's just something I've never never thought about the birth rate and how to incentivize it. Um, anyway, it's just just a tip of my hat there. Somebody in the Asbury community. And I think I think it's wild to me that he's. Um, He's Dr. Coleman's grandson too. So um, uh, any, uh, yes. I, I'm going to have to close this off here because I, I want to make sure to honor your time. But I ha- I'm ending with a question with everybody. And I'm, I'm not quite figured it out grammatically yet, but I want this more to the story. So is there more to Kevin Brown's story? What more to the story of Kevin that a lot of times uh, people don't hear? I mean, do you like to snorkel? What is it? I mean, is there, is there more, what, what more to Kevin Brown that people might not know about? Um, I mean, this is a, it might come off as dull, but it is just so 100% true. Um, I, I think of my parents, I think of my in-laws, I think of my wife, I think of my kids, I think of my closest friends. Um, I talked about the people that invested in my life in college, my grad school advisors, um, because they are, I am. Wow. That's, that's my story. Um, and I, I was someone that I just felt like um, the, the Lord was so kind to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, we, we had a visitor today and uh, we were showing them around, but I, I made the comment that if people from another part of my life would know that I'm in higher ed and I'm in Christian higher ed, and I'm an administrator in Christian higher ed. I mean, they would be like hospitalized from shock. Um, so I, I, I've just been an incredible recipient of the love and kindness and investment of people close to me. And um, if, uh, yeah, it, a, a good life will be, I, I will be successful if somewhere down the road, someone can say the same thing that I invested in them. Yeah, and sure conferred a name upon them or an um so that that is the something more amen that's a good look you brought back from the very beginning the conferring a name i think that everybody will take that away from this kevin thanks so much for your time you know as somebody who sees asbury as an institution of of my life that's significant and that speaks into our world um abby and i are so thankful for your leadership there and you're accepting this call to serve in this way and um you know, we're looking forward to what God's going to do through your leadership and with Maria's by your side and your team all there. So there was a, a, a dozen other things I want to talk about, but I'm thankful for what we had time for. So thanks so much for your time today, Kevin. Thanks, Andy.